Well, that's cool. Right? Hello, fellow isolators. I hope you are all doing well on this strange Christmas Eve. I know many people are not seeing family or have to change plans to keep everyone safe, as well as dealing with new restrictions in some provinces. As these all played out in mid-December, it seemed another perfect time to have a socially distant book club meeting. As usual, I was joined by a special guest and a live studio audience on Zoom for an evening talking about reading, stories, and all things books. Since we had a longer meeting this time, let's get straight to the talk. So hello fellow isolators, our little studio audience here, and welcome to the third edition of the Well That's Cool book club. Normally I host these book clubs from Edmonton, uh, but this week is a bit special. Uh, for those of you on the Zoom call, you can tell that I'm not in my normal surroundings, and that's because I have traveled home to BC and I'm currently spending some time in self-isolation in a very cute little tiny home here in Campbell River. I would like to acknowledge that I am hosting this live podcast as a visitor on the traditional territories of the Lechquiltach, Clahus, and Comox First Nations, and I hope I got the name Lechquiltach correct. That's a difficult one for me. Um, thank you to our live studio audience who have signed on a bit earlier than normal for this event. It is good to see you and good to connect as our provinces go into a little bit stricter lockdown rules. Um, while we may not be able to join together for these, it's always good to be able to see friends once a month for our book club. As you know, you can ask questions at the end, and I hope that you'll join me in doing that. Now, I'm very excited to introduce my third guest on the Well That's Cool book club, Mark Zulke. I've had the chance to meet Mark a few times over the past seven or eight years or so, including, including at book releases, talks, and when he was a special guest speaker for a course that I was taking at UVic. Mark is an award-winning author, generally considered to be Canada's foremost popular military historian. Um, his 14-book Canadian battle series is the most exhaustive recounting of the battles and campaigns fought by any nation during World War II to have been written by a single author. In recognition of his contribution to popularizing Canadian military history, Mark was awarded the 2014 Governor General's History Award for Popular Media, which is also known as the Pierre Burton Award. He's also an award-winning mystery writer, but we'll get that get into that a bit later. So, Mark, thank you very much for talking with us this evening. Oh, you're welcome. Nice to be here. Now, as I mentioned, you have written many books on Canadian military history, the, uh, particularly in the Canadian Battle series. But you've also written about other wars and other parts of Canadian experience in general in the First World War, in the Spanish Civil War, and in the War of 1812. I want to start the conversation about sort of generally military history and that side of your work. But I do want to hear a little bit more about your process and some of the stories that you've uncovered a little bit later on. So I think we'll just dive in with the, the military history part and move our way through. Just to start, and because I know that we do have uh, some fellow history nerds on the podcast here today, you are recognized, as I said, as Canada's leading popular military historian. So what does the popular history side of that mean and entail? And What's really made you so well known in that field? Well, popular history is kind of defined more by what it isn't than what it is. Um, what it isn't is academic history. And that's where the sort of starting point in the um, discussion begins. Um, academic history is very much focused on um, really academics writing for each other. Um, and so there's a question that's posed uh, a theory that's put forward, and then that the whole book is an argument to defend that thesis or, or um, question, answer that question. Um, popular history by, is different in that what we're really looking at is the overall story of an event. So I take one of my books, like Ortona, it's about the Battle of Ortona. I'm not really trying to prove anything. Um, what I'm trying to do is capture the essence of what everyone experienced when they were fighting in that particular battle. So you're looking at a lot of, you know, the fact the facts still have to be extremely well researched and everything like that. So in that way, it's no different than an academic approach, but 
we're really getting onto the heart of taking the history and turning it into story so that people who are not professional historians are going to be wanting to read this. And that's why it's popular, because it's for the populace in, in a sense. And so that's basically the definition of what popular history is. And, and what's made you the sort of foremost person? Is it is it just the fact that you've published so much, so many books on that subject? Or is there something about the actual writing and the books themselves that have made you sort of stand out from that popular military history crowd in Canada, at least? I think it's two things. I think the, um, the volume of work is part of it. Um, that, you know, there's, I know the only person who's written 14 books on, on uh, one nation's war experience um, in, in the English language world that I found out uh, a couple of years ago, which is pretty amazing. Um, so it's quite an achievement personally. Um, but I think what it goes to is, again, the, the nature of storytelling. Um, I've, I'm, as we'll get into, I, I, my background is journalism and also um, so I, I know how to tell a good story. I know how to play, bring character in. I know how to describe scenes. I know how to just um, move action ahead. Um, I bring all of that to the writing of the nonfiction. So you're not making anything up, which is unfortunately in fiction, you got this, it's so much easier in fiction. But in the nonfiction, you have to have the facts backing it up. So, you know, what I'm doing is, is um, taking dozens of elements uh, and putting them all together in each paragraph uh, to make to make that story come alive. So that the reader hopefully is seeing characters in the soldiers or the civilians that are involved in the battle or whatever, moving across the landscape of the battlefield. And, and so it's it's kind of like watching a movie is what I'm, you're trying to achieve. Mm. And those characters are are ones that you identify beforehand, or they sort of come up through the through the research. How how do you focus on those? Well, a lot of them are ones that um, well in the past, a lot of them were people I interviewed. Um, now the last book I wrote, The River Battles, um, I interviewed one veteran. Uh, for that book, because that's all there's left. You know, we, we only have three, uh, I think it's less now than 3,000 Canadian World War II veterans are still alive. And of those, an awful lot of them are not going to be able to give interviews at this point. You know, their memories are confused or um, they just don't remember um, or their health isn't such. So it's very hard to interview veterans now. Um, book like Ortona, I interviewed over 100 veterans for that book. So I had, a, I had a, my own wealth of interviews. But uh, I still draw heavily on um, the UVic oral history um, program that you were a part of. Um, and that's a wealth of material there because the, the World War II veterans, a lot of them were interviewed in the late 1960s through to the early 1980s. Um, their memories were quite sharp still at that time. They were, um, also a lot of them were going back to Europe and on uh, every two years or so and visiting the battlefields again. So they really remembered and knew what they had. So I've, I'm using that material. Um, a lot of um, documents, uh, accounts, um, there's a lot of memoirs of the Canadian soldiers wrote at the end after they came home from World War II. So that kind of material is, is drawn in. Um, so you just go back and forth between all that. So I don't tend to, when I sit down and think, well, today I'm going to write about this particular soldier. I'm more, I'll be looking at the battle and then looking around and saying, well, which soldiers were there and in what order and, and figuring it out from there. Well, let's let's talk about the the battles themselves because there are fourteen books in your series, um, which look particularly at Canadian experience in the Second World War. Canadians were a part of the war for six years, more or less. They joined in in thirty nine, mid thirty nine. But the the battles that you look at, 
are primarily the ones in France, Belgium, the Netherlands, and Italy. Um, three full books that deal with Juno Beach, which I thought was interesting as somebody who uh, who worked at Juno Beach for a summer as a student. And, and those look at sort of before, on, and just after Juno Beach, the battle and the invasion itself on D-Day. So how do you pick which battles to look at when it's a global scale of conflict and Canada participated for such a long time and in such a varied way, why why did you write about those ones and why in the order that you looked at them in, as well? Well, the order was kind of chaotic um, and not because I started with Ortona um, and that happened because I was at a Remembrance Day ceremony in uh, Kelowna where I was living at, at that time. And in those days, this is sort of early 1990s, in those days, there were still a lot of veterans around. And after the Remembrance Day ceremony, everyone adjourned to the Legion Hall, uh, where you drank beer and ate bad bully beef and talked to veterans. And so I got talking to a group of veterans, and they had all, they were all uh, former Loyal Edmonton Regiment uh, soldiers. And they were starting to talk about the this battle called the Battle of Ortona. And I was kind of shocked, thinking I knew a fair amount about Canadian military history to realize I'd never even heard of the place. Um, so I thought, well, I'll go get a book and read up on it. And there wasn't a book out there that focused on the battle. There was um, a couple that you know mentioned it in passing, but not you know totally focused on it. And then as I thought of more about what these guys had said about the uh, hellish conditions they endured, the many friends they had lost in the fighting in the streets of Ortona. I thought, well, you know, there needs to be a book about this. Um, and that was one of those, oops, the, the buck stops here kind of moments <laughs> uh, where I realized, well, okay, maybe I should write the book. And so that took quite a long process. It was very, um, at that time, uh, Canadian publishers were not interested particularly in military history and particularly history of, of World War II. Um, so I was not getting a, a publisher uh, for quite a few years. And then the movie Saving Private Ryan comes out. And one of the editors who had rejected my book uh, a year before phoned my agent and said, that book that was out there, we'd like to publish it. Um, and this was like two weeks after Private Ryan hits the, the screens. Um, so Steven Spielberg saved my career. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm beholden to him. Um, and so Ortona then came about and we published it through a publisher called Stoddart at that time. And it was it became a bestseller. Um, and that's unusual in Canadian battlefield military history. So it did quite well, and that led me and encouraged the publisher as well to, we could do more. Um, and so we were looking at the Italian campaign because, the, and so then the next logical one off of Ortona was the Leary Valley, uh, which was the next big battle they fought. And then from there, the Gothic line, which was the other next battle, big battle they fought. And so those three books, the two of them were published, and then the third was in the process of going towards publication when Stoddart um, went bankrupt. And so we started looking for a new publisher. And Douglas and McIntyre came on board with uh, Scott McIntyre, the owner, particularly being enthusiastic about my work. Um, and that coincided with the upcoming date of the 60th anniversary of the Juno, of Juno Beach and the D-Day landings. And so Scott said, well, Italy's great, but let's go and write about D-Day. Um, so we, um, that's where we moved. And it was supposed to be a book that was going to be June 6th to June 12th, um, covering the, the really intense fighting that happened at, at, on, the, on the beach and just inland from the beach. And I was writing away, and I was at about 60,000 words, and I hadn't got the guys off the sand of, of Juno Beach yet. <laughs> and so I, I phoned up Scott, and I said, um, you know, how about a book just on June 6th? And then we'll do another book on June 8th, 7th, the 12th. And he was graciously went along with that. 
And it worked out well because Juno Beach again became a bestseller. It's it and Ortona continue to be the best-selling books in the series. Then I, I have a kind of esoteric way of going about this. Um, I started looking around at battles that weren't known, that that people, you know, generally just dropped off the memory of, of Canada as a nation. And that led me to the Battle of the Shelf Estuary up on the Dutch border. Um, so from there, uh, it, it's never been really a, a, a logical pattern, particularly. I tend to go where I think is an interesting subject. On to Victory was an exception because, again, we were coming up to the uh, 65th anniversary, I believe it was, of the liberation of the Netherlands. And it just made sense to bring a book out in conjunction with that. And uh, so there's that. And then, you know, I started looking around and see, oh, well, I forgot Sicily and Dieppe. So I've got to go back and do those ones. And, and so that's kind of how it, how it works. And the river battles, which was the most recent one, I didn't think I was ever going to write a book about that particular subject. But I ended up um, being invited by uh, a his, history group a sympo to a symposium they were holding in Ravenna, Italy. Uh, it was a local Rubena history symposium group. And when I got there and started to see the battlefield that was there, I realized that contrary to what other historians and even many veterans have told me, that there was a really interesting battle there, even though it takes place in basically 26 square miles over a five month period. Mm -hmm. um, so very little moving around, just intense fighting in there. And I realized I could actually make a book out of it. And at this point, it's the book I'm most proud of, but I'll move on to another one. <laughs> then that one will become the most proud book. Right. But that, I mean, that goes to show just how different the experiences are that you're writing about as well. You you don't pick one battle and then have the same thing to write about in the next one in another country or even just up the road in Italy as some of those early books were. They're all very different things to write about as well, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's what I really find is interesting as, as well, is um, every battle ends up being its own unique story in, in how it evolved, the conditions that the soldiers fought in, where the soldiers were at mentally even. Um, in the river battles, one of the things that came forward very strongly was they had been fighting the well, fellows who had come in from uh, in Sicily had been fighting for almost a year and a half. They'd been in operations in their, their regiments. And what you see is by the time they get up to the river battles is most of their co comrades, their colleagues that they landed with in Sicily are either dead, wounded, or uh, illness or whatever is taken taking them out of the thing. So a lot of them, they've lost a lot of buddies. And what becomes evident in, in the river battles is they don't want to be the last Canadian to die in Italy. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of anxiety uh, that wasn't as present in the Gothic line battle or the Leary Valley battle. Because of just the, the, the numbers of casualties that had occurred. And then you have the, you know, it's winter, the awful, the awful weather conditions. It was the fifth, the 50th um, worst winter in 50 years in Europe, that, that uh, 1944, 1945 winter. So appalling conditions um, that they were trying to operate in. And that takes a lot of psychological toll on them as well. So there's a much more of a psychological um, casualty effect in, in that particular book, I think, than in others that I've done. Mm -hmm. Well, you're, you're mentioning Ortona, and it's actually the one that I have with me here. Um, I have a lot of the Juno Beach and France ones that are all in hardcover, so this is the only one I was willing to fly with. Um, but it's a, you know, it's something that I that I think, as you mentioned, a lot of Canadians don't know this story and, and probably still don't know much about the Italian campaign. And, and I should say that six of the books are about Italy, but one of those six is actually less about the battle 
1943 and 1944. It's about your experience going there and taking part in a, um, not a recreation, but a reliving the route, the, the march that the soldiers took through Sicily. Can you tell me a little bit about about why you decided to go and take part in that and why that ended up being a book, retracing this route of the 1st Canadian Infantry Division through Sicily? The whole um, idea of what became known as Operation Husky 2013 was really the um, mad invention of an entrepreneur in Montreal by the name of Steve Gregory. And his son had done a project on, on the uh, invasion of Sicily after meeting a, a Canadian veteran who had been in Sicily. And they weren't able to find much information about um, uh, the whole invasion of Sicily. And so they did the project over about a year and a half. And then um, Steve took his family to Sicily uh, the one year, in one summer. And he went on his own to Azure Canadian War Cemetery, which is a little cemetery in the middle of uh, Sicily, um, very isolated. And in those days, hardly visited at all by Canadians. Um, I had been there the year before Francis and I had walked down from Azure, the, the hilltop town above the cemetery and spent Remembrance Day in, in the cemetery. And when I looked at, there's a book in that, all these cemeteries that, where people sign in for visiting it. And when I looked at the book, nobody had been there for a year. Um, so was, you know, basically just nobody's going there. Um, and that included Italians or anybody. Um, so Steve had the same experience. He goes and looks in the in the book and, and um, probably saw my name from the year before. <laughs> and and uh, he went around to headstone, headstone, headstone until he'd done all 468, I think there are, um, there. And looked at them and made note of the soldiers' names and, and that. And then he said, I'm going to go home and I'm going to bring back others. And that was his vision and it's it, it he ended up contacting me shortly after that because he ran across operation husky my book on the sicilian campaign and asked me if i'd come on as a uh historian to assist him in, in uh, getting people interested in, in coming to sicily and shortly after that i decided well if i'm going to do this i gotta go all in so i'm going to be one of the marchers and so, and then Francis, my partner, joined us as well. And uh, so there was about uh, eight, ten, ten of us who actually walked the entire route. Um, it was 360 kilometers over 20 days in, in July in, in Sicily, where it's 40 degrees mm -hmm. uh, Celsius many of those days. Um, and we were joined by later on the Canadian forces came in with a contingent that joined us. There was some regiments that came in with members of their regiments that joined us. The Seaforth Highlanders Pipe Band um, arrived and was with us as well. And as I looked at it, I started thinking, you know, we were in the we were going into communities every day and holding ceremonies with the Sicilian population. Um, there was just a lot of dialogue and interface um, about remembrance and what a remembrance is that was coming out of this event. And I thought, well, this is a perfect prism through which I can look at what does remembrance actually mean? What is What do we do when we're remembering um, the sacrifices of generations before and through war? Um, and so that led to, you know, writing the book through blood and sweat, and, and that's really the theme about it. So it's, it's a, in a way, a partial memoir, a narrative of, of an event, but it's also a, a meditation, I think you'd say, on, on remembrance and how remembrance has came to be shaped uh, through things like the Commonwealth War Graves Commission and how they actually designed the cemeteries. Um, through the local communities and how they remember um, the Canadians coming through, and then our own memories. Has that changed how 
your later books were written or, or sort of how you approach those as the books themselves a bit of, me of remembrance or a way of letting other people remember? It, it has a little. Um, I, I'm, I do a more, I always had an epilogue at the end of each book where I sort of looked back at that piece of history through, through the modern lens of what it means uh, to, to us, um, what, what the significance of it was um, in a more meditative way. Certainly with the River Battles, I did a more extensive piece of writing about that. For, for that. So I think the epilogues are stronger uh, than maybe they were earlier. And uh, and I just, I also find I'm, I'm, I'm still continuing to look at Remembrance. I'm, I'm very involved in a, once COVID gets past us, we'll get back on the road. But I, I work as a, a battlefield historian with a company called Liberation Tours. And Remembrance is a really big part of what we do when we take, um, our guests to uh, Italy or Northwest Europe and that. So, you know, we get them down on the beach at Juno Beach, for example, and I do briefings right on the sand where we're looking at, you know, this is what happened here and this is what happened there. And also then into the cemeteries. Um, and as you know, when your, your first visit to a, a Commonwealth War Graves, Commission cemeteries is pretty life-changing and, and it really affects the person. Mm -hmm. And so we we build a lot of remembrance aspects into our um, into our tours. Um, are there battles that you still have to write about or that you want to write about? Different areas, different elements of the forces, even. Well, I'm working. Well, actually, I'm stalled at this point. <laughs> But I am working and will be in the future when I can travel uh, on a book about Canada's role in the war with Japan. Um, so it's going to be a, an overarching book that will deal with the entire war that we had with Japan. That's the next one. Um, I was it was supposed to be coming out in the fall of 2021, but you know I haven't been able to, I haven't been able to do any research. So so it's just sort of sitting there. And we await the um, ability to, to fly to Ottawa and we await the um, the actual archives actually opening. Um, the National Archives and the, the Department of National Defense Archives are both pretty much shuttered um, mm -hmm. at this point for the kind of research that I want to do. Well, that's uh, that's interesting that it's it's 15 books in before you look outside of Europe. I, I find that interesting. Is that going to be a, a trend towards other areas and other parts of the war as well or or do you think europe will always be sort of the the heart no, of well the next the one i was talking about will be a, about the pacific war really yeah. the the war with japan um so so it it is a de the departure point yeah. um i'm thinking i may come back to europe for a specific book on the battle of varying ridge and um, i think it's not been it's such a extensive battle that I think it could justify its own book. So I might do that, but it's also hard to tell. Um, I am 65. <laughs> well, and wherever the interest takes you, as you mentioned earlier, too. Um, I want to end our conversation about this section, just briefly talking about your uh, receiving the 2014 Governor General's Award, uh, specifically for popular media. This is something that recognized not just one work, but your your whole con contribution to that point to the field. What did that mean to you to receive that recognition, especially when when looking at those remembrance pieces and telling the stories of individual Canadian soldiers? It meant a lot to me um, as an award because uh, because it it is a recognition of a body of work, not just a single title. Um, that was quite an honor and the other thing that made it really uh, memorable for me was that it's also known as the pierre burton award and pierre burton is one of my role models um you know as i was looking at who you know the style i wanted to do in military history um his Vimy ridge book was a, a real guide uh, his and, and some of a couple of American historians that did really uh, good 
um, more narrative kind of writing that I like to do and wanted to do. Um, so, and also I got to meet Pierre Burton a couple times. It was, that was, that was a, mm. you know, a big part. And I actually also was a writer in residence in his family home in, in Dawson City for uh, three months. Um, that, yeah, it meant a lot to me. Um, as part of that, I actually did a, a lecture at the Canadian War Museum that was is part of what you do when you get the award. There's a, a lecture component in it. And I titled it, Write It Like Burton, Only Better. And because uh, the one thing Pierre Burton was a little weak on was the research side of things. Um, he's, he, he tended to hire um, young academics and send them out to do his research and then bring it to him. And that led him into going down certain rabbit holes that were in the wrong direction in, in certain books. Um, so there were there were more errors than than I I, I try to be errors. <laughs> but you know, you know. Well, that's a good a good pivot point for us to talk about young academics because as I mentioned earlier, I first met you at the UVic um, course on the Veterans Oral History Project which is a, a course that teaches young history students how to do oral history interviews and, you know, all that surrounds them as a part of history, as a, as a source material. You spent um, an afternoon talking to us about the techniques that you used, as well as the importance of doing the interviews. But we've also already talked about tonight, um, the, the source material that you primarily interview is increasingly not there. So what... What will that do to change your work as you move forward when there are so few left to interview? Well, at this point, basically, I am relying on the work that people like yourself uh, did in the oral history projects. Um, it's it's one of a number that exists across Canada. Um, so that material is there. There's, uh, for example, I just came um, in the summer, I was able to go to Calgary and, and the military museums there. They had uh, quite an extensive uh, collection of interviews with um, Canadians who had been in the Burma campaign in, in 1944, 1945. And so I was able to access that and that's gonna be a big part of the book I'm gonna work on when I can. So basically, yeah, I'm having to mine this accounts from other places. But the one thing about armies when they march, especially the um, Canadian and British Army, is they generated thousands of pages of material um, recounting what they were going through. Um, they had, there's a whole um, thing in the Canadian British Army um, study i think the americans use it as well called lessons learned after you finish it an action you have a whole bunch of people sit down and write about well this is what happened to me this is what happened around me and then they um they sit down and they basically say okay what did we do right what did we do wrong how can we how can we fix the wrong parts and do things better um so that's a big part of things uh, each regiment keeps a daily war diary um, a lot of good information in some of those. Some of the war diarists were incredibly good. Um, Farley Mowat, for example, wrote the um, Hastings and Prince Edward war, war diary. Um, so you've got the, <laughs> an amazing writer writing the war diary for a small regiment. So that material is all available. Um, there were historical officers that traveled with the um, army and they interviewed constantly uh, soldiers, usually officers, but not always. They would sometimes interview uh, individual soldiers uh, about their experiences as well. So I draw on all of that. It's, it's um, generally, uh, like the last book, for example, I had probably 15,000 pages of official history, official records in the Canadian Forces. Mm, wow. Um, one of the characters in your Ortona book is actually a, a person who left school when he was wanting to become a historian, which I thought was kind of interesting and, and thought that must have been a nice person to have writing notes home and keeping a diary as well. This this question actually comes from my first book club guest, Rachel Bell Irving, who was curious about in a nonfiction setting and as you're trying to keep all these source materials together, 
uh, and very complicated interconnected histories themselves. What do you do to go through that research to keep it organized and to ensure that you are turning it into the final product that you end up with? Well, what I used to do when I was just dealing with paper um, was I had boxes and boxes of files um, color coded um, by different uh, rubrics, if you want. Um, so the war diaries were all in one color and the uh, written other army reports were in others. Nowadays, um, with PDF, um, it's even it's even better um, because I can take those PDFs and so for the river battles, um, I would take everything that I had in the way of documentation on the fighting at the Lamoni River, for example, and that becomes a separate folder. And so I'm just multi at this point, multiple copying. Um, so anytime I'm writing about the Lamoni River, everything, everywhere anyone said anything about the Lamoni River, they're now in the Lamoni River files. And then I have another one, the Senio River files. It's all about rivers and river battles. Uh, and so, you know, it's actually easier to organize now with uh, everything being pretty much digital. I, the amount of paper copies I have in this last book um, didn't even fill one file box where I had uh, the terrible victory, for example, was four different, you know, six, six file boxes, you know, thousands of pages of material down in the basement now <laughs> in folders. You mentioned that you're not originally a military history writer. You are a mystery author who trained and worked as a journalist, um, as I understand it. How has that change of styles and topics, other than just the way you approach story, how has that sort of impacted your writing as you've um, become the military historian that you are? I think the journalism gave... Um really gave a number of things. The one thing I think it gave that is a, kind of unique to journalism um, skill is the ability to write very, very quickly and to distill information very, very quickly. Because if you're working at a daily newspaper, you have to be able to take a whole bunch of information, distill it down and write it into story in an hour for it to meet the next deadline um, and, and on it goes and then you know um, in the papers I was working in they weren't dailies they were uh, two to three issues a week and we had very small staffs um, typical small town kind of operations poorly paid um, overworked <laughs> but you know it wouldn't be uncommon for one issue for me to write 10 to 12 stories not all of them would be under my byline. They just would appear uh, in there because there was only like three of us uh, who were writing the entire content of the newspaper. Um, so you learn to work very quickly and that has done me in good stead uh, as a book writer because I can produce quite quickly. I, 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 don't, I don't suffer from writer's block because you don't have time to have writer's block when you're working in a journalism background. And so I've never, never had that problem. The mystery writing part is really, is that bring, bringing storytelling techniques, uh, using things like dialogue in, in nonfiction work, you know, which, which is hard to do in, in nonfiction because you actually have to find where people said, this is what I said to so-and-so, and this is what they said back to me. Because um, you can't just make up the conversation like you would in fiction. But where you get an opportunity to do that, it just brings the history so much more alive. You know, to feel that, you know, here I am in a room and these two people are having a, a, a big blowout argument over, over what they should do next. Um, that's, you know, really good uh, story you know, to get into. And I'm able to, to use those techniques, I think quite effectively in the nonfiction to, to make that work where I think a lot of other historians, they wouldn't have the self-confidence to utilize those kind of fictional techniques or, or that kind of skill even. Hmm. And are you still writing fiction um, at all? 
I'd like to. <laughs> I haven't the, the I haven't done one in quite a few years. Um, basically, it's it's a, it's a matter of time. Yeah. The uh, the the military history is taking increasing amounts. Of, it, you know, I am slowing down. I guess as I get a little older, so I'm not writing as fast as I used to. Yeah. Um, you know. There were times when I would sit down and write 5,000 words in a day. I don't do that anymore. Now it's 2,000 is a good day. <laughs> wow. But I'd like to say I'm writing better, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's really a matter of time. I'd like to get back to the fiction, but between, between the writing, between the touring, between the um, researching that I'm having to do, uh, I seem to be very busy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, no doubt. Um, your partner, you mentioned Francis, Francis Backhouse is also an award-winning writer and journalist. What is it like to live in a house full of award-winning writers? And are, are there ways that you're writing? I mean, they're very different topics, but there are they ways that they they interact or, or can you, do you have to draw a line under it and not talk about writing together? We talk about writing. We don't very often read each other's writing as a, in the creative stages. Occasionally we will uh, read somebody something by the other person just if there seems to be a problem. But mostly we talk about not so much the process of the writing but the subjects of the writing because as you say, Frances's writing is quite different from mine. She's mostly writing about biology um, and ecology and um, you know, I'm writing about war. So we, we um, what we really like doing is traveling together on the other person's project. Um, it's, it's great to just go and hitchhike along. Um, so Francis usually comes with me at uh, some phase in the uh, research when I'll, I'll be over in Europe. We were up in uh, northern British Columbia a couple of years ago doing some research for her uh, book that she did on uh, beavers. So yeah, we, that that's a great uh, pleasure to be able to do that because it, it's nice to have a purpose in your tourism. <laughs> yeah, especially when the other person has more of the driving purpose, I'm sure. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Well, and I'm curious if you could tell us just to sort of end this part of the conversation, if if you there is a story or two that particularly stand out from the research that you've done, the books that you've written, um, was there something that was unexpected, something that you found that surprised you, or or you know a character that was particularly interesting to you? I think one of the things that I found most surprising is. Um, when I was doing On to Victory, which was the book about the liberation of the Netherlands, I was writing about the Battle of Groningen. Groningen's a city in the middle of uh, Holland. Um, it uh, was the largest urban battle the Canadian forces fought in Northwest Europe. And uh, what, what struck me was, as the battle was playing out, the Canadians would be on, there was canals that run through the city. So the Canadians would be on one side of the canal and the Germans were on the other side of the canal and they're shooting at each other. And all these Dutch civilians are, are wandering around in the streets behind them as if they're, it's just, you know, nothing, you know, there's a battle going on, but so what? <laughs> they're wandering around and, and watching the battle from close up, you know, virtually standing at the shoulders of the Canadian soldiers. So that there, there was just this wonderful um, uh, absurdity uh, that gets into war at times, and this was a great an example of that. And in fact, uh, uh, the forward observation officer for an artillery unit called George Blackburn described how he was on his wireless calling artillery down on the Germans on the other side of the canal. And this young boy comes out with a uh, tray and a, a silver and China tea presentation that his, his mother had put together that he gives to George Blackburn. So he's sitting out in the battlefield, sipping tea out of his China, China mug um, and pouring the tea out of a, a silver teapot. I love that kind of story. You get that kind of thing. It just humanizes the whole um, event, the whole process of war becomes, um, it's almost satiric. 
um, you know, in the nature of the thing. Um, so that kind of thing is, is stuff I really enjoy. Um, so that's probably a pretty good example. Mm-hmm. Avid listeners of the podcast, uh, if there are any, will know that the second or third episode I did was actually an interview with my grandmother, who was a child during the Battle of Groningen, um, and wrote a memoir about her experiences just outside of town, actually. Um, She wasn't quite running up to the soldiers at at her age, but, um, but a very interesting take on that experience from the eyes of a child who went through it. So that's a, Mm -hmm. that's a a good tie in. I'm interested to hear those stories. Um, I do want to end our conversation with a recommendation or two from you. But before I do that, one thing we do on every one of these book club meetings is is open the virtual floor to our uh, our small little audience if they have any questions. So if anybody does, jump on in and feel free to ask Mark a question. Thank you, Mark. That was really lovely. Um, so I can't imagine, um, I did my graduate degree in uh, U.S. Civil War history. So oral history was not quite... Um, something that was available to me. Uh, so I'm wondering about whether you ever ran up against a bit of dichotomy or when the memories of those who were, you were interviewing with oral history was, I don't want to say incorrect, but in opposition to what the research was. Mm-hmm. Um, so how you're navigating someone's personal history with the source material and and how you navigated that within your works well that's a really interesting one because it uh it does happen all the time especially veterans as they were getting older they started to um conflate their experience and so they would be saying you know well at the shelf estuary did this and then you realize well no it couldn't possibly be in the shelf estuary because the descriptive doesn't work so then you got to try and figure out where the heck is it (laughs) you know um and so you get into those kind of situations and i'm very careful i i try to always um not just have you know the veteran if the veteran's account doesn't jive with the official account not to say, well, the official account's right, the uh, veteran's wrong. I'll then try and find three or four other sources and, and come to a conclusion about what occurred. But sometimes you just realize that veteran memory is flawed um, for one reason or another. I didn't, this is from another author who remained nameless, um, who uh, in writing about Juno Beach interviewed a veteran who was describing being in a landing craft going ashore and looking over his shoulder and seeing a Canadian naval vessel blow up and sink. And how he, and unfortunately, the poor guy carried this with him for the rest of his life, um, the sadness of all those Canadian sailors lost. But actually, we didn't have any ships sunk at D-Day. What he saw, I realized, was the, one of the Canadian destroyers fired all of its guns shoreward, it was sideways, and the smoke obscured the ship so much that it disappeared. And of course, that ship was going very, very fast because they were going at top speed, firing their guns as they went along the beach. And by the time it came out of the smoke, it would have been so far away, he would never have seen it. So he he believed that the ship had been sunk, it was fine. It was going along just fine. Uh, unfortunately, the other author took it as fact and didn't bother doing any research in his own, <laughs> and, and so missed the fact that we didn't lose any ships at, at D-Day. It was a um, great success in the, from the from the naval point of view. I hope that helps. It certainly does. Yes, thank you so much. <laughs> You're welcome. I wonder how or when you know that you've done all the stories that there are to be done. Um, do you ever get to that kind of a point when you're doing historical work like this? Is, is there an end? Um, at this point, the, I don't see a, a real end point. I think there's a lot of books that could still be written that I could write. I think there's gonna be a lot of those books that I won't be writing because of just, uh, you know, aging time, um, and but I, I'm interested to actually thinking about young historians. Um, 
I've had discussion with several who, um, you know, are looking to write books. Um, some of them, some of them approach me and say, "You're not planning on writing a whole book on this particular battle, are you? Because otherwise, I won't." <laughs> it's like, no, 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 don't do that. You know, there's room for there's room for more of us. And so, I, I'm very much encouraging other people to to write as well and, and to get the the stories just have to keep coming out. With my own books, when I'm writing about a particular battle, I, I know chronologically where I'm going to end with that battle. And when I get to that end point, that's where it stops. And, and then uh, maybe another book beyond that, but that's where this book will stop. Is that almost from, from your journalism, from the preventing scope creep into a small story as well? Yes, I think so. Uh, I do have a very, uh, I think I do have still a, a, quite a journalistic approach that I use. So it's a hybrid historian, a journalist um, way of coming at things. Kind of a similar one. Um, you talk a little bit about, you know, the, the inspiration coming from novels and fiction. And we hear a lot of the time of fiction writers who find characters in their imagination that by the time they get to the end of the novel, they realize that character doesn't have a place anymore. And they, you know, there's a fully developed character with a fully developed story that doesn't make it into the book. So sort of the same idea of like where you end the story. Is there any character that you had to remove from a story or that you, a story that you didn't end up telling that has stuck with you? Um, I've generally, in the fiction I haven't, I can't think of a character that ended up not being in the story. I've certainly had characters who took on their own lives and went off and did things that I haven't been anticipating. Um, and that's not, that's not an uncommon experience for fiction writers to have um, experiences like that. And so I've definitely had that uh, happen. I have had in the nonfiction where I'm working with uh, particular um, character, if you will, where things get a little too, they get so vague and uncertain about where that person was and what they did that I have to drop them because I just, I can't, I can't really place them accurately in the battlefield. Um, so that happens at times. And, um, and sometimes I can be really disappointed because you have like these really good stories and you just can't fit them into the historical context so sometimes that does happen a similar idea i guess is that when you write your pieces you're writing about specific battles for the most part in, in mm -hmm. some of your books but are there it's sort of a little bit spinning off of what adrian said are there stories that come out of that work that you'd like to delve more into, like a, an individual or a, a group of soldiers or whatever that is a little bit separate from the battle itself, would you ever follow into, into the more personal realm of those? Or can you do that within the context of your books about the battles? Well, I've, I, I try to do as much as I can in the context of the book about the battles. Um, I have played around with for quite a few years the idea of a book that would be less about a battle than about uh, the overall experience Canadian soldiers had in World War II. Um, it's sort of tentatively called it the long journey home, where we would look at things like, you know, okay, what did it mean just for soldiers uh, from various campaigns uh, going out on night patrol or um, what about what they ate, what, what was it like to be um, uh, sick and, and going up the uh, medical system. So that's one that's in the back burner. Um, and sometimes I think about it and think it's uh, just be so, so over, uh, overwhelming to try and do. Other times I think, oh yeah, that's a great idea. So mm -hmm. we'll, we'll see on that one. Interesting, thanks. 
Um, so thank you very much, Mark, for, for coming and talking with us today. Uh, it was great to, to see you and hear you again and to be able to talk about uh, Canadian history and Canadian military history, which is something that, as you know, I'm quite interested in, that I enjoyed studying and, and always enjoy reading about and hearing about. Um, I'm looking forward to your next book. I'm curious to see how it goes leaving that European theater and moving into new worlds when you, uh, when you can get out and research again. Hopefully that'll come soon. Before we leave, I did want to ask you if you had one or two recommendations for books, either ones that you're reading or ones that you particularly like um, that you could give to our group in the podcast here. Well, number one is Farley Mowat's No Birds Sang. Um, it, it remains, I think, the quintessential uh, book by a soldier of World War II, in, a Canadian soldier of World War II, and really many uh, stories. It's just uh, such a well-written uh, narrative, and, um, and and very honest. You know, he doesn't try and make himself look like any kind of hero. Um, in fact, you're getting pretty clear as as the book unfolds towards the end, and it's up in Ortona that uh, when you look at it nowadays, you can see he is starting to um, uh, suffer from uh, battle exhaustion. And um, it was after that that he was actually um, taken out of the line and made a, um, what do you think, Prince Red, Edward Regiment's um, intelligence officer, which is when he became, uh, got the duty of doing the Daily War Diary as well. So it's a, it's a really a great one. And I mentioned earlier George Blackburn. Uh, he wrote two books that are extremely uh, good. Uh, one's called The Guns of Normandy and the other's The Guns of Victory. He was a forward observation officer with the 2nd Field Regiment of Artillery, I believe. And it's also really good because both of those books, because you very much see his progression as a soldier through the, um, through the entire Northwest Europe campaign and the costs that it started it takes in the on him psychologically forward observation officers had a very high casualty rate because they were walking along with the guy next to them who had a radio on his back and a long whipped antenna uh sticking up in the air and every german sniper wanted to kill that guy and so he never got wounded amazing uh in all of his time in the mines but um you can sure see the uh cost it had on him mentally and, and, uh, and psychologically. So very good books. Those those three are, are um, if you want to read any memoirs of World War II, those three are the, the best. Yeah, good recommendations. Thanks. And if you want to know the context behind it, of course, read Ortona. Mark's now 21-year-old book uh, from this Canadian battle series. Well, thank you once again, Mark. Um, as is tradition, uh, everyone is welcome to stay around and chat a little bit if they want. But yeah, once again, thank you very much, Mark, for joining us. You're welcome, Ben. Thank you. My thanks again to Mark Zolke for talking with a small but regular group of book club members this month. If you want to learn more about Mark and his Canadian Battle series or other writing, visit zulke.ca, and that's Z-U-E-H-L-K-E dot C-A. That's it for the Well That School Book Club this year. That's right, we've made it to the end of 2020. Thanks to everyone who's joined in so far. It's been great to be able to talk about reading and books with you and to have you join the podcast. I'll be back for another book club meeting on January 21st at 8 p.m. Mountain Time, for a conversation with speculative fiction writer and author of Inveritus, C.J. Levine. And don't worry, I will be asking what speculative fiction is. You can register for that meeting on my website, benfast.ca slash cool slash book club. As for the latest update on my reading list, I've temporarily dropped A History of Scotland by Neil Oliver, and just finished The History of the Glider Pilot Regiment by Claude Smith. This was a really hardcore history, with lots of regimental information, numbers, and not too much action, though those parts were the best when they came around. What a crazy bit of military history, those glider pilots. Now I'm back to a light sci-fi read with The Consuming Fire by John Scalzi. It is the second book in the Interdependency series, 
and I listened to the first one as an audiobook read by Will Wheaton. The audiobook was good enough, but I think I'm enjoying reading it without an excited Wesley Crusher doing all the voices. Do you have any New Year reading recommendations for me, or any good books you got for Christmas? You can get in touch with the podcast on Facebook at Well That's Cool Pod, or on Twitter at Well underscore That's Cool, or you can send me an email at Well That's Cool Pod at gmail.com. Thanks as always to Ron Yamauchi for the theme tune, and to Anna Schroeder of Another Design for the Cool Podcast logo. Check out her work at A-N-N-A-T-H-E-R-Design.com. Other music heard during this episode and all the other podcast stuff is done by me, Ben Fast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, stay well, and happy isolation reading. <laughs>